you'll turn with me in your Bibles now um, to our scripture reading this morning. It's Numbers 21, 4 through 9. The words are also printed on the screen. From Mount Hor they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that the many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. If the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, let me, uh, allow me to pray once more before we go to God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for uh, this reading of your word. And Father, now we ask that you would bless the preaching of it. Uh, to your glory, the good of your church, and extension of your kingdom, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the name Carl Truman. Carl Truman, for uh, many years, taught at Westminster Theological Seminary up in Philadelphia, and now uh, is also is a professor at Grove City College. But some years ago, he wrote an article titled, Being Bored Unto Life, addressing this topic of boredom, being bored. And he quotes from um, extensively from the 17th century uh, French philosopher named Blaise Pascal, so who even his day as he observed the people, of, uh, the people around him, and he moved around you know, the social elites, um, he, he basically noticed that people were doing everything they possibly could to avoid being bored. And he basically said they did this in, in two ways. First, they would, he, he, he basically called this, uh, it was by way of distraction. And what he said was, um, he, he said that basically when he looked at the, the people around him, he, 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 he was trying to figure out, he said, look, you know, for the poor in our community, for those with meager existence who indulge in a dance here or there um, to distract themselves from their situation, that makes sense. But what about the kings who are surrounded by evidences of their greatness and of their power who still insist on having a jester, right? Having someone who provides trivial entertainment. And so he says that is one way uh, that, uh, that, he, uh, that, that, that the people of friends did it. And they said a second way, he called it, it was by way of divergence. And, and what Pascal says was, he says that what, what he noticed was that people would fill up the entire day with what with offices by which he meant roles, you know, like father, mother, uh, you know, your work, bosses, whatever, um, by by uh, by, uh, by by roles um, and duties, and it would fill up their day from entire from from sunup to sundown, so that their entire day was this hectic maintaining of their wealth, their health, their honor and their friendships, because they came to believe that unless they were doing that, they were not going to be happy. 
And Truman says, he says, this was happening in 17th century France, and it's still happening today. Uh, we are a people who do all we possibly can to avoid being bored. And what Truman points out, he says, it, and he says that he says, the reason might be is that when we find ourselves being bored, we are confronted with the reality of who we really are and the reality of the ultimate. And we do not like it. And therefore, what we try to do is we basically try to get away from it. And my challenge to you this morning um, is to lean into being bored. Not, not during the sermon, like after. But, but, uh, but, but to lean into being bored. Because what, what we're saying is that if you, when you find ourselves in the story in Numbers 21 is you find God's people, as it says here in verses 4 and 5, it says that they are impatient. They are discontented. They are bored. It's been a long journey. And, and because it's been a long journey, they are right now in the wilderness, and they have, not made their, they have not made their way to the promised land. If you know anything about the story of the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel were rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, and God brought them across the Red Sea in that wonderful miracle, right, of dividing the Red Sea where the Red Sea parted and they came through. And then they came into the wilderness, and, and then they are on their way to the promised land, into Canaan. And, 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 and as Christians, our, that has always been sort of our way of thinking about the Christian life. We, we talk about and think about ourselves as those who have been rescued out of slavery. Those who have been rescued out of slavery, not in Egypt, but to sin. That God has done an amazing work to do that. And then we are also to think of ourselves as, as on our way to our inheritance, which, which is kept in heaven for us. That, that we are bound for the promised land. And we sing that in our songs. Uh, we, we sing songs like, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye and cast my eye to a fair and happy land where my possessions lie. It says, I am bound, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. That's where this comes from. Right? So we, we, we get that. But the story that you have here in Numbers 21 is, is calling your attention not to your rescue, not to your inheritance, but to the journey. It's calling your attention to think of yourself as a pilgrim, as a sojourner. And the place that you are sojourning through is a wilderness. And a wilderness, by its nature, will create discontent. I, I don't know if you've ever been and visited to a, to a desert. Last year, uh, Lindsay and I, my wife and I, we, we took a trip to the southwest, um, southwest United States. And we went to Joshua Tree National Park right? You know, Joshua Tree. I wanted to see Joshua Tree, you know, you too, all that, right? And so we went, and so we went to Joshua Tree National Park, and, 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 and everybody talked about it. It was really famous. And, and when you get there, you're like, okay, right? In some ways, there's something strangely attractive about it, but, that's, but also there's a whole lot of nothing, right? I mean, that, that's the nature of, 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 of a wilderness, and, and you can imagine, if you are in that position, that it will breed discontent. But my invitation to you this morning is not to try to find a way of getting away from a discontent. Because my premise here this morning is to say that it, it's not that, that, that discontent was bad, 
but how it was expressed was bad. And in some ways, we are being invited to maybe a divine discontent where we can actually see God's mercy in the midst of the journey. So we want to look at this story. We want to look at this under three headings. First, that God's people's discontent is misdirected. Secondly, God redirects our discontent. And then thirdly, God's sufficiency for our discontent. So look at this passage with me. So if you look at Numbers 21, you notice that the people are journeying from the Red Sea and they're in the territory of Edom, verse 4. So what happens in that story is, is they are essentially back where they started, right? If you know anything about the story, like I said, they, they, they began at the Red Sea. Right? That, that was the big, the big rescue out of, out of slavery. God parted the Red Sea. Um, and now you are in Numbers 21, and it looks like they haven't moved. Uh, they, they, are, they have been, well, literally moving around in circles, uh, they have also, if you, look, if you look in your Bibles to verses 1 to 3, they, they have defeated other enemies. But when it comes to the territory of Edom, they are being not led to confront the Edomites, but to go around it. And so, in some ways, what they're saying is, when you, when you get to this story, is that, that, that will create um, an impatience. But one commentator basically says their, their, their discontent is directed wrongly in three ways. First, they were wistful about their slavery in Egypt, the past. Secondly, they were fearful about their future. But then thirdly, they were resentful of their presence, of, of, the, of the present. And what you have in the story is you can see this in the story when they confronted Moses and God. And when they confronted Moses and God, the target of that was the manna, the food that they released, that, 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 that they had been fed with. Now, if you look at the story, you know the, the, the word that it says that they loathe this miserable food. That word miserable is really a strong word. It's a really a word that you would say it was, it's a trivial thing. It's a small thing. Now, for a people who are journeying to the wilderness with a whole lot of nothing, who had, who had no provisions whatsoever and trusted God for everything, it wasn't trivial. It wasn't small. It wasn't miserable. And, and you and I know that it is impossible for us to say something about the gift and, and not say something about the one who gives it. it it's, it's impossible to say something about the provision and not say something about the provider. So when the people of God in this story considered the manna trivial, they were saying something about God, that he was trivial. Now, we get this. Right? We, we get this idea of where, where the giving of something is tied to the one who gives it. Many years ago, when I first came to the United States, I, I, uh, I, 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 I bequeathed one of my treasured Lego sets to my, to my cousins. All right? So, um, 744, I still remember the number. Right? It, it was a set that I had kept in the box. It had the, even the plastic lid on it. I mean, everything. Right? I counted the, the, the pieces to make sure they were there. But, you know, but I was going off to college. So I said, all right, I, let me give it to my cousin who also enjoys Legos. So I gave it to him. Months later, when I came back to visit, 
box was gone, all the pieces were mixed in with the other 500,000 bricks that are in those, those, big, those big boxes. And, 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 I, and it said something, right? I mean, it's not that I, right, right, you know, I'm maybe too old to play Legos, but, but at the same time, I was like, I had kept that thing. I, you know, this, what, what does it say about, what does it say about me? I mean, and, and that's what we're talking about here. In some ways, it is impossible for those two things to be separated. And so when the people said this food is boring, they were saying in one sense, God was boring. Has Christianity become boring to you? And, 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 and I think if you're asking the question, in, in what way has, has that happened? Let, let me give you three ways that it's possible for us today to become bored with Christianity. First, it's possible for us to get bored with the Bible. Week in, week out, we're reading God's Word. And we want to say, is, that, is, is this all there is? Are, are, are we reading the same story again? Um, the, these miracles that are in there, do we really believe that God parted the Red Sea? Do, do we really believe that Jesus calmed the storm? Do we really believe that dead people come back to life. And, and if, you are, if you are there, then in, in some possible, heresy is not far. And so for us, it's a good, it's a good check to ask, are we, have, we, have we become bored with the Bible? Second way that I think we can, that, that happens today is people become bored with the church. Right? You might be familiar with this notion today in our cultural lingo about people talking about deconstructing their faith. People who have grown up in the church or who have participated, grown up in, in maybe in Christian families. Um, and then at some point in there, uh, they, they basically decided that uh, I don't own this. This is not a faith of mine. It's not a faith that I own. And, and they use this term of wanting to break things apart of deconstructing. One, 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 one writer I, I, I was looking at says, he says, you know what? That is actually not a bad exercise for, for people. But he says, for heaven's sake, do it in the church. Do it in community with the people around you. Do it with people whom you know and who know you. Don't do it online. Don't do it in virtual spaces. Do it in real spaces. The church is a place for that. But for many, we want to deconstruct or leave the church in order to figure things out. Because we just don't think that the church has answers. We are bored. Third thing that we get bored with. We get bored with tradition. Now there are bad traditions and there are good traditions. But in some ways what happens is our, our desire for the novel and the new sometimes works against us to say that, the, that our past, our Christian story, the people who had come before us had anything good to offer us. And, it is, and, it is, and I think it is, it, in some ways, our idea of wanting to recover things from our past is a good thing. Because in some ways, what we're saying is, maybe there is something in our Christian past that is worth recovering that will create wonder for me as I think about my Christian faith. So first, we can say that, our, that, the board, that, that people, that they're discontented, their discontent was misdirected. But secondly... 
What does God do? Well, in verses 6 and 7, their discontent gets, mis- gets redirected. So if you look at verses 6 and 7, you see that what God does is he sends these, as your translations might say, fiery serpents. Okay? Now, these fiery serpents, some, some, some people have, have noted that even in the early 1900s in this region, this was known and notorious um, for these poisonous snakes. Right? It was, just a, it was just a climate, and it was the region. It was dry, a uh, little bit of water, a lot of salt. All of those things were conditions for these type of creatures. So in some ways, these serpents were natural to the environment of the wilderness in which they were in. So the fact that they had not been bitten was because God was hedging them in. God was protecting them. And so what he does here is... For a time, he removes that hedge of protection. And what you have in that story is that the people get bitten, right? Now, the question is, why a serpent? Why is this this in this story? Well, the story that you have here is that a serpent was actually the the, the symbol on the headpiece of the pharaoh. So essentially, the serpent was a very symbol of their slavery. And so what God does in this this story is is, is he's actually giving them a reality check of of what their slavery was. Just as they were bitten by the snake, God, for a time, was allowing them to experience the bite of slavery. To, to help them remember that they were, back in Egypt, under the threat of death. Just as now, because of the bite of the serpent, they are being brought to death. Now, you have to know that in this part of the story, right, in this part of the story, the, the people of Israel had food. Now, it was the food that they had got tired of. I don't know whether you remember they, they remember that in that in that in this story you wonder wh- why did God bring them to the wilderness in the first place, and in Deuteronomy eight God actually describes and he says look the, when Moses is retelling the story to the people of Israel he says God brought you to the wilderness and God fed you with manna, not for the sake of the manna but so that you may know that man will not does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, if that sounds familiar, you know that Jesus actually used those very words when years later, we are back in the wilderness, and Jesus is there, confronted by Satan, and where Satan confronts him and says, turn these stones into bread, and Jesus says, Man shall not live by bread alone. What Jesus has is way worse in terms of the situation than the people of Israel. The people of Israel had food. Jesus had none. The people of Israel wanted something different. Jesus refused. And what you have in this story is that what what Jesus is doing is he's highlighting for us that the wilderness is by its very nature, a place that creates want. And we are being invited, just like the people of Israel, 
to have utter dependence on God himself. That's why this bite of the serpent is a severe mercy. It's not punishment. It's, it's a way for us to, for, 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 for God to get our attention. The famous Lewis quote in The Problem of Pain when he says that God whispers in our pleasures but shouts to us in our pain. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In some ways, that's, that's what God does. And I have no idea what wildernessness looks like for each of you in this room this morning. It could be a health issue. It could be a family issue. Perhaps you're wondering what's going on in the world. And you might be confronted by economic issues. Whatever it may be, the question that you should be asking and we should be asking is not, why is this happening? If it's a wilderness, discontent will come out of us by its design, by its nature. However, when it does, we are being invited to look to the Lord. And that's what you have in this story. And then, and then in verses 8 and 9, what, what does God do? Well, we have, we have in the story, we have the people saying they're confronted by their sin. And they come to Moses. Moses intercedes. This is what Moses has been doing over and over and over again. He intercedes for God's people. And what God does is he asks um, Moses to take a, take a metal snake and nail it to a pole, a standard or a pole, and, and, in, and, and basically people who look to it will live. Now, this in itself is a little bit strange, right? There's a lot of strange. What, what does this have to do uh, with, with the story? Why, why, why does God provide this way? Well, for one thing, the, 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 I mean, if, if you are trying to find a connection here, the, where the, the word bronze or brazen is really the word for copper. And so really what we have is a copper serpent, right? Copper is a reddish brown color. So that's, that's some aspect of the, the connection between, be, between that. But at the same time, you're like, why? What is, the, what, what is the function of it? Well, you need to know that it is not so much the object in and of itself. Remember, God's word accompanies the rising on the raising of the standard of the, of, of, on the pole. Incidentally, what happens later on is the people of Israel imagine the object itself becomes the power um, of their preservation, and it, and it actually becomes an idol. It becomes an idol in the land of Israel. In 2 Kings 18, verse 3, King Hezekiah, years later, actually destroys this idol, this, this thing that, has, that had become uh, a snare to God's people because they thought that in just simply in the possession of it that they had their healing. God's word accompanied that. It was the means, but not the end. The end was God himself. And therefore, whenever they took the object and separated it from, God, from, the, from, from God's word of healing, it, it didn't actually, it, it didn't accomplish anything. It actually, it had the opposite effect. Rather than becoming a, mele- a, a way of healing, it, be, it became death to them. And so what we have in this story is you have God saying, this is the means. But it still asks, begs the question, what, why, why this way? What does, a metal, what does a metal snake, a metal serpent on a pole have to do with their healing? 
Now, in one, in one sense, we can say that the snake itself was the symbol of their suffering. Whenever they looked at the serpent from now on, they remembered their slavery in Egypt. It was also the, what, what was afflicting them at that time. They were being bitten by snakes. And yet at, the, yet at that very moment, yet at that very time, God took the very thing, the very symbol of suffering, and he actually, it actually becomes the way for their living and for their healing. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, you know that this is the direct reference that Jesus makes years later in John chapter 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus. And he says in John 3, 16, everybody and all of us know that verses, don't we? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the verses right before that, verses 14 and 15, says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up that whosoever believes in him might have eternal life. Jesus was saying that he, through his suffering, no longer symbolic, but as real as it can possibly be, becomes the means by which the people of God live. And, and that's why we have this, and that's why we have this story. That's why we have it here. But as we, come, as we, as we, as we wrap up here, my, my invitation to you is this. It's in, in some ways, what we are being confronted with, and you know, the, when we think about the gospel, we think about the gospel as something that delivers us out of sin. What we have here is that the gospel story, the message of the cross, is for you and me right now in the middle of our boredom and our discontent. In the middle of the journey, when novelty of our, of our, of our rescue, maybe for, some, for, for many of you, you've grown, up in your, you've grown up in the church, and you can say, I've never known a time when, when I've not heard Christ uh, preached, uh, the Bible read, my parents praying, and, and somehow Christianity has become boring. The novelty is not there anymore. And, our invita and, and my invitation to you this morning as you look at this, as you look at this, is that the, the, the good news of the gospel, the cross, the message of the cross, what you're invited to look at, just as the people of Israel, look at this, the suffering symbol, this, this metal snake on a pole, is as it was for them, it is for us today. Have we lost our wonder in the mundane and the monotonous? Have we become bored? As we close, let me leave with you two by, by way of illustrations, as we, as we, just, just for your consideration. First, I don't know you, if you've ever looked at, you, you know, you, you've had, for, for if you ever had children, you know, whenever you, you know, whenever you have a child, you have a girl and you, you throw her up in the air, and you catch her, what does she say? Do it again, right? Do it again. And you throw up in the game, you run out of gas a lot quicker than that child, right? You, you, you're like, go, go find your mother, right? Somebody else, right? In other words, you're, you're, you're done because you, have, you as an adult, unlike that child, have lost the ability to glory in the monotonous. We, we don't have it anymore. 
And G.K. Chesterton, in one of his writings, he says, imagine that's what God does with the sun every morning. When the sun rises and then it sets, what does God tell the sun? Do it again. He also says, if it's, it's, when you imagine a bunch of daisies, we think just God creates all of them all together. Is it possible he, glory, he, he, he creates each one? And in creating each one, he never gets tired of creating another one? In, in one sense, God is, I hope it sounds, doesn't sound weird, it's, it's childlike. And, and, as, and as his image bearers, regardless of how old we get, our, we, we, are, we are being asked to, to consider that as a child. No wonder in John chapter 3, when, 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 when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, what does he say? How must you enter the kingdom? Being born again. Right? By being born again. Become as an infant. Become as a child. Because in some ways, well, in many ways, that, that, that is God's answer. And, 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 and rather than distracting ourselves, whether it, be, whether it be things that amuse us or entertain us, or whether we diverge ourselves by our duty, man, I'm busy, right? So many things, right? All good things, but we have given ourselves to so many roles um, in, our, in, in, in our life, rather than that, maybe, maybe to stop and ask, what, in what way have I lost wonder? Second illustration. Some of you may know the story of um, Brittany Maynard. Brittany Maynard, back in 2014, um, at the age of 29, dying of a brain tumor um, by, physis- by, by physician-assisted uh, suicide. Uh, committed, did, did that in, in, in Oregon in 2014. And, and in 2014, what she did was she, she said she wanted to die on her own terms. Right? So a doctor gave her a pill. She died in her bed with her mom and her husband, favorite music playing in the background. And she, and she, and she, and she took her life. In Colorado, around the same time, there was another woman named, named Kara Tippett. Some of you may know that story. I think there was, a, there was a Netflix documentary not too long ago, right? Dying of cancer. And in 2014, right before, uh, before Brittany Maynard took her life, she writes an open letter. Now, what caught my attention was the title of Kara Tippett's blog. Still out there, so I think somebody else is maintaining it now. Kara Tippett's died in 2015. The title of the blog, Mundane Faithfulness. Mundane Faithfulness. For us, the idea of the mundane is, is something that anathema. We, we hate the mundane. We push against it. But what if it's faithfulness that we are being called to? And when Kara Tippett writes to, and she writes to Brittany Maynard, basically pleading with her not to go through uh, with this. And in her blog, she says this. She, said, she, she tells Brittany, she said, Brittany, I am dying too. I am dying too. But in my dying, but in my dying, I have found living because in Christ's dying, because in Christ's dying, 
there is living. Most of us would say we would rather have it on our terms. The wilderness is too hard. And we're not downplaying things like Brittany Maynard's struggle. She, hers was, 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 something, was something huge. But could it be, could it be that you and I are being invited to something that might be mundane? Are, are we feeling the boredom? And that's actually a good thing that we are being asked to lean, to, lean into? Because maybe by leaning into it, just like the, just like Kara Tippett's, and just like the people in, in the wilderness, they, they might find something that would recapture their wonder. Interestingly enough, in the book of Numbers, you, you, there's, no more, there's no more record of them grumbling. Right? This is the last recorded event. That doesn't mean it, doesn't ha- didn't, it may not happen, but from the biblical account, in some ways, we, we, don't, hear about, we don't hear about this anymore, which is interesting. So, as we close this morning, I would ask you, Christian, are you bored? Lean into that boredness. Lean into the the boredom. Because in that, you might be confronted with the reality of who you are, and at the same time, you will be confronted by the wonder of who Christ is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your word. We thank you again, Lord, for the way that you speak to us. And we thank you again that you are... um, that you are doing a good work even now. Father, we, um, Lord, we confess that so often uh, we, we, look for, we look for the novel, we look for the new, and we distract ourselves with, with, with the new. And the wilderness is hard, and the journey is long, and, and we are tired, we grumble, we complain, um, we are dis- discontented. Um, Father, help us to see your saving cross anew this morning. Lord, to be recaptured by wonder, just like a child. Um, Lord, that, that even though we have recounted the gospel story again and again, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something by your, by your goodness we can, we can say to ourselves. Let me hear it again. Um, because there's no way for us to not look at the cross not be changed, and there's no way for us to look at the cross and not live. So we ask that you would do that for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.